The title of my sermon this morning is Let the Children Come. This title comes from a line in the Gospel of Luke, which I'm going to be teaching today, among a handful of other verses that are leading up to it. So there's this one verse in the Gospel of Luke with this line, Let the Children Come. I'm going to teach that line, but I also am going to give the surrounding context of the whole Gospel of Luke and the immediate verses that are around this one line, let the children come. So that said, would you please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. I'll say more about the title, let the children come, and the text of Luke 18. But first, I want to begin in Luke chapter 1 so that we can build up some context and we can get there. As you open your copy of an English Bible and find your way to the Gospel of Luke, let me show you a picture of an ancient copy of the Gospel of Luke. What you're looking at in front of you is known as Papyrus 45. It is a part of the Chester Beattie Papyri, which is a group of early biblical copies of, uh, of scripture. It contains eight manuscripts of the Greek Old Testament. There are three of the New Testament. There are a few extra biblical texts in this great archaeological find. They were discovered in the 1930s. They date back to the 200s. An American antiquities collector named Chester Beattie, hence the name, Chester Beattie Papyri, uh, who, who was living in Scotland, who journeyed over into Cairo, uh, discovered these and he, he bought them, and today they are held in Ireland. The Chester Beattie Papyri are housed in the Chester Beattie Library in Dublin, and there are a few of the other manuscripts from this collection that are also held in the University of Michigan. So you can go see those. Now I show this to you because as you're opening up the Bible and we live in a culture such as ours, you've likely heard things like, well, you know the Bible, it's changed over time. You know, it's been copied and copied and copied and you can't trust it. Uh, well, actually the evidence in the sands of times begs, begs to differ. You are looking at a copy of Luke chapter 13, verses 29 through 35. You've got a section of chapter 14, verses 1 through 10 here on P45. This goes all the way back to the 200s, it, and, and, and it, it says what your text says in your modern English copy of the Bible. You can take that to the bank. It aligns with the ancients. This stuff about the text changing and what have you is just absolutely nonsense. And I love it when I hear those things because I was tortured in grad school to learn these languages. And you say, oh, that's interesting. Do you read uh, the ancient languages? Well, no, you know, but I saw this YouTube or whatever. You're like, oh, get out of here. Uh, why don't you go to Dublin and go to the library and ask one of the librarians to, to read that for you uh, and, and, and just get on with it. But for us today, as we have our Bibles open, as you're looking at a piece from the ancient world, it reminds us that we are a part of a tradition. Um, uh, tradition sounds bad to a lot of people in contemporary West, but tradition is actually good. It, it means you're a part of something, something that has been passed down to you. Even further, something that has been entrusted to you. We are a people of a book. This is the world's uh, longest running book club. We meet once a week, we talk about this book, we devour this book, and more than studying the book, we worship the author of this book, namely God, who worked through human history and human authors to, to give us a revelation of himself. So we, we're, we're, we're here with this word in front of us as a part of our worship, and a part of our worship today, we're not just studying the word, but we're, we're expressing and symbolizing the word as we come in, in, in song, as we come to the Lord's table in communion, and in our service today, which we don't get to do every Sunday, uh, Lord willing, maybe one day we'll... we'll We'll see the Lord bring revival, and we could do this every Sunday, but this Sunday, we're, we're going to see some baptisms. We're going to have four baptisms after the sermon today, 
And, and, and of these four, all of them are youth. And so I thought it would be fitting for us to be in a text of Scripture this morning that, that talks about letting, letting the youth come, letting the children come. Additionally, I was drawn to this passage this Lord's Day because this month our, our community, and in particular a family in our church, suffered a very tragic death of a child. And in the face of, of loss like that, this is every parent's nightmare, uh, we wonder, we, we wonder, you know, what, 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 why, Lord? And so we've been processing some psalms in the last two weeks that help us think about that. And you wonder about children. You wonder about the young. And you wonder about what God's word says with regard to the afterlife. And this is going to be a passage in which speaks to that. And a passage which speaks uh, with regard to uh, the youth who we will see coming forward in baptism. And so it seemed a fitting text for us to be in, a text that gives us some comfort in tragedy, a text that reminds us that we're a part of a tradition. Uh, the Gospel of Luke has so much to say to these things. So come with me into the ancient world of the scribes and the texts. More, more importantly, come before our Lord as we study his word this morning. When Jesus offers this line, and, and we're, we'll, we'll get to it i got to build the context first. When he offers this line, let the children come, see his desire for children. Uh, at that point, when we get there, you're going to see that Jesus' popularity is at an all-time high. By the time we get into the 18th chapter, but I need you to be in the beginning of Luke right now. Uh, the paparazzi was watching Jesus' every move. The paparazzi was waiting for, for you know, uh, to catch something juicy on Jesus so that they could you know, upload it on TMZ and make a fool out of him. And, 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 and right around this time, there are people who start bringing babies to Jesus and, and young children who start running to Jesus. And we're going to see uh, the, his disciples actually freak out about it because they're worried this is going to turn into something with the paparazzi and what have you. So, so we'll get there in Luke 18. But for now, Luke chapter 1, as I talk about it, look with, look with your eyes at the text so you, you see the context. I'm, trying to teach you how to, how to read the text and, and familiarize yourself with this wonderful ancient book that records uh, a, a, an eyewitness uh, community member with regard to the historical Jesus. So look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. There you have the prologue to this book. You see the prologue as it opens, and then it recounts the announcement of the birth of Jesus. So if you look at chapter 1, verse 5, and you follow with your eyes all the way to chapter 2, verse 52... There you have an account of the announcement of the birth of Jesus. Then you move from chapter 1 with the prologue into chapter 2 with the announcement of the birth into chapter 3. Draw your eyes at the text of chapter 3. Look at, look at verse 2 and let me read this. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Here, here we read about the historical figure John the Baptizer. Prologue, announcement of Jesus, now historical figure John the Baptizer. He's also known as John the Baptist. Uh, Jewish culture was Baptistic. Uh, uh, baptism it comes from a Greek word, baptizo, which simply means an immersion in water. Uh, for the Jewish people at the time, they would refer to this as mikvaot, or mikvah is the singular way of saying this. They were a culture that was familiar with using water as a part of their tradition and, and, and worship. So, so in their culture, let me show you some more archaeology here. Uh, we, we have these baptismal pools from the ancient world. You have a picture from the ancient world and from the modern world. This is still a part of the Jewish culture today. 
and this is a part of our tradition, and this is where it comes from, mikvah oat, using water as a part of ceremony. It's a wonderful uh, thing to use for ceremony because it really gets at some things inside of Scripture. Uh, specifically, water washes, doesn't it? And inside of Scripture, sin is, is likened metaphorically to filth. When you're filthy, it feels good to get washed. It feels good to have a shower. It feels good to, to, you know, to wash your face off. It's refreshing. And so, too, it's refreshing to have your sins forgiven by God. So, too, to have this, this symbol reminding you of, of your need of something external to cleanse you, that you're not going to find cleansing within yourself. You need something external to you. So, in the Jewish culture a culture of symbols and a culture of rituals. Water was a very important part of their worship. So they would regularly, the priests, before they would come before the people, before they would sacrifice, they have these mikvah pools inside of their homes, many of the priests, and outside of the temple in Jerusalem. And you would go inside of these inner pools and you would wash yourself before you go in and worship. And you would see in the worshiping community... Uh, they're outdoors, and you know, what you, the pools were indoors, but then you'd leave the indoor pools and you'd come out and you'd be wet. And it, it's all a reminder that we're a community that have been washed by, by God. It's a symbol. Uh, likewise, a wedding ring is a symbol. This doesn't make me married. It's just a symbol of myself being married. You, you know, a, a, a husband can't go and cheat on his wife, uh, get caught, and say, well, I wasn't wearing my ring when I did it, so it doesn't count. No, the ring doesn't make you married. The ring is a symbol of being married. We, we're a culture that has symbols. We have all sorts of symbols all around us. We just take them for granted. So in the ancient world, water was a symbol of my need for washing. John the baptizer is a washer. He's, he's using water to prepare the hearts of the people. He's using a symbol that is one that they're familiar with. And, 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 and here he comes on scene, and, and he's, he's talking, the text is telling us, that he's in the, in the Jordan, and he's preaching a baptism, baptizo, immersion, mikvah, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now you might say, well, Pastor Matt, I thought you just said a moment ago that this was just a symbol. Uh, this looks like more than a symbol. It says a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, like, like you have to do this in order to get forgiveness of sins. Uh, in which case, I would say, no, you're misreading the text. Uh, for is not operating that way. In the ancient language, it is the preposition ace. The preposition ace here isn't being used as in order to get. It's being used as because of. Follow me. Uh, there's a baptism not in order to get forgiveness. You don't do this ritual to get God to forgive you. Because if, if that's the case, we could just go nacho libre and sneak up on our friends and baptize them. Or get water guns and just squirt everybody and baptize them. You are forgiven. I don't believe in your God. Boom, boom, you're forgiven. Take that. No, you're not getting baptized in order to get forgiveness. That's not how the four is operating. The four is operating as because of. Be washed a baptism because of the forgiveness of your sins. Consider this uh, illustration. Uh, if you had a headache and I said, take these two Tylenol for your headache... I'm not saying take these Tylenol in order to get a headache. I'm saying take these Tylenol because you have a headache. This is a baptism 
because of the forgiveness of your sins. It's a symbol of being washed. The Jewish culture understood this. John understood this. They regularly do this as a part of their worship. Every time you come to the temple, mikvaot, baptism, they do that all the time. Now, there's something distinct about what's going on here with John, however, because he's doing a different kind of a ceremonial washing. And what he's doing isn't one that will be repeated over time, but it's a unique one that is filled with the imagery of the Hebrew scriptures, in particular, the book of Exodus. The Jewish people, when they were rescued from slavery in, in Egypt, they were rescued through waters. And the New Testament authors, they picked that up and used baptismal language, talking about how God saved them through water, liberated them through water. And they came from the waters of the Red Sea through that, where their enemies were handled and washed away, and they were brought into the wilderness where they come to the land of promise. Now, Israel, in that historical narrative from the Hebrew Bible, when you read it, Israel uh, does, uh, you know, it's kind of an up-and-down, topsy-turvy story. God rescues them, and they go into the wilderness, and they walk uh, in disobedience and faithlessness, and they wander in the wilderness for a period of 40 years, and then they come to the promised land, and what happens when they come to the promised land? They get to the River Jordan, they walk across with the Ark of the Tabernacle, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark, they're carrying it, which is a symbol of the presence of God. And what happens in the Jordan River? The Jordan splits open, they walk across, and they go into the land of promise where it's time to build the kingdom of God. Now here we have that same imagery. We've got not Moses this time, but we have John. And John is standing in the Jordan where Moses himself didn't even get up to because of disobedience and faithlessness, but Joshua would come to and bring the people across the land. He's standing in this geographic, historic place. He's putting people in water. He's talking about the kingdom of God. For any first century reader of this text, you go, this is Exodus. This is kingdom of God. This is Moses. This is Joshua. This is Red Sea. You want us to get into the waters and you're talking about the kingdom? This, the new Exodus? that we've been waiting for, it has come? Oh my goodness, this is incredible. But why the Jordan? Why do you have us in the Jordan? What's significant about the Jordan is at the time, uh, they would baptize Gentiles in the Jordan. Gentiles were those who were outside of the covenant of Abraham. And so, so being outside of the covenant of Abraham, you weren't allowed to come into the mikvah of the temple or the, or the inside pools that were a part of the corporate worship of the people of Israel. Even in the temple, I'll show you a picture of it later in the message, there's a court for the Gentiles that's separate, that's off over here. If you're an outsider and you want to be brought in, you, you would go down to the River Jordan and you would be baptized there as a part of being welcomed into the community of faith. Uh, in fact, let me quote for you here uh, a biblical scholar, Craig Keener. Pagans wanting to convert to Judaism would repent and be baptized. But here John treats Jewish people on the same terms as the pagans. This is what was so offensive about John the baptizer. Um, mind you, historically, he dies by getting his head chopped off. Uh, what he is doing is highly offensive at the time. And if you don't understand the cultural background, you're, you're not going to read the text and get this. Even to this day, mikvah is practiced on Gentiles who want to convert to Judaism. 
I'll quote from a, 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 a issue of the Jerusalem Post not that long ago. A Gentile who converts to Judaism miraculously becomes a part of the people of Israel. This is accomplished by total immersion, baptizo, in the living water of the mikvah, the ritual bath. And so John, a Jewish prophet, hearkening images of Moses and Red Sea and Exodus and Joshua and all that, is telling the people of the city of Israel, you guys are outside of covenant. You need to come, you need to repent, and you need to enter the same waters that the outsiders are entering. Draw your eyes back at the text in chapter 3, verse 7. He began saying to the crowds who were going to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from those stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Don't say, Well, we're, we're in the covenant. You know, we're of the seed of Abraham. I don't, what are you, you're going to treat us like some Gentiles and make us go down to the River Jordan? Like, that's embarrassing. I don't want to do that. I'll just go to my little, you know, make a pool at the house or whatever. Why are you doing? You, you're, you're saying I'm outside of covenant? Yeah, you brood of vipers, he says. And then look, look, look back at the text. He, sa he says, uh, indeed, verse 9, the axe is already laid at the roots of the tree so that the tree does not bear good fruit, is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. You think you're good because you, you're in Abe? I beg to differ, you brood of vipers. You, you think everything is well with you? I beg to differ. There is an axe and it is going to cut and, and it's going to go into the fire. And you, you, Now, intuitively, you might say, John, you're not going to get a following talking like that. It's already really offensive that you're asking us to go to the Jordan. You're treating us like Gentiles. What? All right, whatever. We'll pack our bags. We'll go down there. We get down there and like, let's hear what this old John the baptizer is all about. And he's just in your face like, you're horrible. You're going to get burned and thrown in a fire, you vipers. Vipers are unclean animals. Like... How is there going to be a revival when you talk to people like that? This isn't seeker-sensitive. I mean, you know, you want to grow something big, you got to talk nice like Joel Osteen. That'll attract a crowd. you got to be funny. you got to be likable. He's out there socially awkward in the wilderness just yelling at people and treating them like they're pagans. How on earth is this going to work? Well, we read inside of the text that the crowds are going to him. Draw your eyes back at the text, verse 15. The people were in a state of expectation and they were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. And John answered, he said to them, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than me and I'm, I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Fire is coming. You better get in the water if you want to be safe. Again, highly offensive. Highly offensive. Draw your eyes at verse uh, 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 21 of chapter 3. All the people are getting baptized, it says. This is how you know it is a move of God. It's like when Jonathan Edwards famously preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. You go, bro, people aren't going to like that. And yet we read historically of the great revivals that came as as the wrath of God was preached, people's hearts were, were made soft and they said, well, if, if, if that's who God is and if I'm, I'm at odds with him, then I need to submit myself to him. That's a work of God because on our, on our own, we're all going to recoil at a message like that. 
You, you know, if you're single and on a dating app and the profile is like winnowing fork, fire, have, you know, it's like, I'm not going out with you. No, you know, this, what kind of a person are you? We, we eat in the barn burning up stuff and vipers and what, what are you, what? No, but a great revival was happening. Because the fact of the matter is that this was the fact of the matter. God had promised to the ancients that he would send this Messiah who would come through the line of Abram, who would come through the line of David, and he would bring a kingdom, and he would bring the kingdom with fire. Uh, the earth is messed up, if you haven't noticed. It needs to be made right, and it will be made right through a judgment. But instead of getting fire, you're getting water, because God is patient. So come to the waters. Come while you can, because the fire is coming, the winnowing fork is coming. Now, as all that's going on, right? They're, they're coming into the waters to, to, because of repentance, not in order to get it. They're, they're coming to say, we're on board. This new exodus, we want a part of it. The kingdom coming, we want a part of it. The Messiah coming, we want a part of it. Are you the Messiah? Nah, man, I'm not the Messiah. I, I'm his messenger. I'm preparing the way for him. Rolling out the red carpet. All right, well, we want a part of it. And they're getting into the waters. They're getting dunked. They're, they're, they're identifying themselves with this. We need to be washed, okay? Now we read in verse 21, all the people were getting baptized. Jesus was also baptized. Hold up, wait. I thought baptism is a symbol of washing that you are sinful. Yes, baptism is a symbol of washing that you are si sinful. Jesus isn't getting into the waters because he's confessing that he's sinful and trying to symbolically show that he has been cleansed. The symbol for Jesus operates differently. He's getting into the waters, the waters that all the dirt and the filth of these people have come to have washed off of them, and he's getting into those dirty waters to acknowledge himself in solidarity with them. The symbol is, I'm taking your filth and your guilt and your shame upon myself. I'm not being washed. I'm taking your guilt upon myself. That's the symbol. So Jesus was baptized. Draw your eyes back at the text. And while he was praying, heaven opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him bodily in the form of a dove. And a voice came out from heaven. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. See, that didn't happen when anybody else got baptized. This is clearly a unique baptism. Again, hearkening back, new exodus, Moses, Joshua. Oh, incidentally, if we transliterate Jesus' name from the first century into contemporary English, it's actually Joshua. I'll spare you the story on how it got turned into Jesus over time, but Yeshua is Joshua. Yeshua. A new Joshua has come. And this time, remember what I said when the Ark of the Covenant went through and the water split open? Kingdom of God. This time... The waters don't split open, the heavens do. He's the Ark of Covenant. He's the presence of God. He's God in the flesh. Look at the text. You have a, a powerful Trinitarian language here of the Father saying, my beloved Son, of the Spirit descending like a dove, and of the Son there. We worship one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. They are, they are there, the one God, there in three persons. The Spirit coming as a dove, what, what is that a symbol of? Remember, uh, Hebrew Bible, waters and judgment. Remember, Red Sea, water, judgment. What happened before the Red Sea? Noah. Noah, water, judgment, spared by water. What happened at the end of the Noah account in the flood? What descends on his boat? A dove. It's over. A new age has dawned, Noah. 
And so too, here you have an image of a new age has come. The kingdom of God. The king is here. And the king is here to save. He's, he's not just God, he's fully man. As God, it's his prerogative to forgive because he's the offended party. As man, he's the offending party so he can stand in our place, take our dirty water on himself, take our guilt and shame, and as a man, stand in the place of humanity. And as God, offer forgiveness. In the God-man, humanity is reconciled to God. Now, look back at the text, Luke chapter 3. Okay, he gets in the waters. Look, look at what takes place. The, the, the Spirit then is going to lead him at the end of at the, chapter 3, is going to move into chapter 4. In chapter 4, we see he's led into the wilderness. What does the text say in Luke chapter 4, verse 2? For 40 days. He goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Remember, remember Exodus, right? Through the waters, 40 in the wilderness, wandering in faithlessness, succumbing to the forces of evil before they come to the kingdom. Here you have Israel's history being recapitulated in the Messiah, and he goes into the wilderness for a period of 40, and he does not succumb to the darkness. He overthrows it. You see that in the text. And he's, he's victorious over it. Before chapter 4, at the close of chapter 3, you get his genealogy. So you know who the one is doing this. This is the seed of Adam. Humanity's fall. And he is obeying God to the T so that his perfect obedience can be exchanged for our filth and our shame. Draw your eyes at chapter 4. On the heels of overthrowing the darkness and recapitulating Israel's history in faith, chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit... And news about him starts spreading around all the district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. So now his ministry kicks off. He's, he's recapitulated Israel's history. If you read in the whole storyline of, of the Hebrew Bible, you go, my goodness, he just recapitulated the history, did it perfectly, and now he kicks off his ministry to prepare the people for the new covenant that is to come. Okay, that's chapter 4. If you move from chapter 4 all the way up to chapter 10, just flip pages and kind of catch some stuff as you're turning. From chapter 4 all the way up to chapter 10, you get the emphasis of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Right around just before chapter 10, in chapter 9, verse 51, all the way up through chapter 19, you get the historical record of his ministry heading to Jerusalem. So Luke's gospel moves from this prologue into this announcement, in, into his genealogy, into the, the baptism thing, recapitulating all this history, then his ministry in Galilee, and then his ministry in Jerusalem. Before we transition from Galilee to Jerusalem, you have a climax scene known as the Transfiguration, where the glory of Jesus is unveiled, and there appears Moses, and there appears Elijah, the law and the prophets, uh, draw, your, draw your eyes at the text in, in chapter 9, verse 31. In chapter 9, verse 31, as we're transitioning from his ministry in Galilee to his ministry in Jerusalem, we read in 931 of Luke that they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So the text is moving from Galilee to Jerusalem, the law and the prophets with Jesus, and Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus as his glory is unveiled, and they're talking about what? His departure to Jerusalem. That's incredible. See, the disciples are, are trying to get it themselves. And here you have Moses and Elijah there. And they're going, you know, tell us about what's happening. 
in the economy of God. You're the Messiah. What's going on here? He's, I'm going to die for the people. I'm going to perfectly do their history. I'm going to live life the way everyone should. And then I'm going to die as an innocent sacrifice for everyone. And in, in of all places in the world, in Jerusalem. In fact, they'll, they'll, they'll crucify him outside of the city as a, as a scandal. And so the text is showing you his heart for humanity, his heart for the mess of our creation. He's going to move from Galilee to Jerusalem. A bunch of thugs are going to arrest him. And, and, and so that, that's leading us then up to chapter 18 to give us context because he's going to his death. His popularity is at an all-time high. He's been teaching, loving, fellowshipping, ministering, pouring his heart out. As his heart has been poured out, opposition is coming. A group known as the Pharisees are trying to trash Jesus on Twitter. Who are the Pharisees? A lot of times when moderns hear Pharisee, they think, well, that's a bad guy. But you have to understand in the context of the day, when they heard the word Pharisee, they didn't think bad guy. The Pharisees were good guys. They were hardworking, smart. They were were patriotic people. These are the guys who were willing to, you know, take up arms for their country. They, they, they would fight for their country. They were, they're hardworking. They were intellectuals. They're deeply spiritual and devout. They weren't like the rest of people. You'd, you'd look up to them. In fact, the word Pharisee comes from an Aramaic word, which means to separate or to be distinguished, to be set apart. The, these are the guys that you look at and go, man, that guy's the real. That guy's the real right there. He's the real. He's, he's set apart. If you're watching basketball, there's players that are set apart. Uh, I grew up, you know, enamored with Magic and Jordan and, and John Stockton and Larry Bird. You know, you, like these guys are set apart. Their numbers are, you know, in the stadium. These guys, they're, they're set apart. You look up to them. The Pharisees were the guys that people looked up to. Highly influential. Uh, one of the number one podcasters in our culture is Joe Rogan. If Joe Rogan says something, people, you know, they, yeah, I, I heard it on Joe Rogan. Uh, if, if, you know, Elon Musk is an influential character. Bill Maher is an influential character. Oprah, if she says, you get this book, you know, everyone gets it. The O, the O effect or whatever. The Pharisees were like the Oprahs. They're like the Joe Rogans. They're super influential. In fact, let me co- quote a source around the time of Jesus, Josephus. He's an ancient Jewish historian uh, who, who worked for Rome. He estimated that the population of the Pharisees was around 6,000 in the area where Jesus is. So they're highly influential there. And Josephus wrote, the Pharisees were one of the sects of the Jews, as we've already informed you. They have so great a power over the multitude that when they say anything against the king or against the high priest, they are presently believed. If they say it, this is what goes. Okay, so from Galilee to Jerusalem, now you've got these guys attacking you, and the people listen to them. So who are they going to listen to? So Jesus, chapter 18, hopefully you're at at chapter 18, he starts talking in parables. If you look at the beginning of chapter 18, he's telling a parable. Jesus spoke in parables to cloak things. He spoke in parables to talk about the Pharisees often, and he did it in a way where the Pharisees wouldn't catch it. In fact, even his disciples wouldn't catch it. And so he gets subversive with it. We don't have time to cover the first parable, but draw your eyes to verse 9. He's going to give a second parable. Verse 9, look at the text. He told this parable, verse 9 says, to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Okay, I shared with you about the Pharisees. I shared with you about how people viewed them. 
I shared with you the title of my message today, Let the Children Come. I shared with you why I want to do that, because it shows us God's heart for uh, babies and youth in a time of loss. There's application for that as well. We get to see some youth in our church be baptized today. So we've talked about what baptism means. And now we're at this text, and Jesus is heading off with the proud. I'm going to give a parable about those who trust in themselves. Look at verse, verse 10 in the text. Two men, this is his parable, went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. A parable is, is a story. It's an earthly story with a heavenly message. That's what a parable is. There's two guys, Jesus says, and they're going up to the temple to pray. Okay, I shared with you about the Pharisees. Uh, let me share something with you about the tax collectors. Tax collectors are definitely the bad guys. They are the sellouts. They are, I, I don't know, uh, IRS agents or something. I mean, they're, they're just hor they're horrible people. They, they show up at your house and you know they want, they want, to, get my, they want to get more of my money. Uh, and, and they were corrupt and they would do that. They would buy debts and they would take those debts and add extra on it. And they had government powers. And Rome, the Gentile foreign power over the land, would employ Jewish people to be the tax collectors for the Jewish people. So, so culturally, if you were Jewish, you view them as sellouts. You work for the man. You work for my oppressor. I see you, man, you are a sellout. You're a horrible person. You are the lowest of the low. You're like a drug dealer who lives, who's from the neighborhood. And you're selling drugs to our people, ruining our neighborhood. You are a horrible person who's hurting your own people. You're not selling to other people. You're selling to our people. You're ruining our neighborhood. That's what the tax collectors were. Verse 11, draw your eyes at the text. The Pharisee stood up and he was praying to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, the swindlers, the unjust, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm quite the guy. But the tax collector, we read in the text, verse 13, standing some distance away was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. He was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. See the juxtaposition. Okay? One guy is proud and one guy is beat down. I shared with you earlier about the temple, how there is a court of the Gentiles that keeps them far away. And in the text, you read that the tax collector is far away. Tax collectors, a lot of times, they don't let them go into the temple. You can go over there with the Gentiles. You go over there, you stay with the Gentiles. We don't want you over here. So he's far from the place of presence and worship. Look at what Jesus says in verse 14. I tell you, this man went to his house justified, the tax collector... Rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. It, the, the script just got flipped. The bad guy is righteous, and the good guy is unrighteous. It's a role reversal. It, this would have felt very hyperbolic and, hype, you know, like, like, wait, what are you saying? This, this doesn't sound right. Like, a, a tax collector? Like, are you kidding me? Now, now... You might remember, we did a study on this not that long ago, Luke chapter 19. Keep your finger in 18. Turn over to Luke 19. Draw your eyes at verse 8. Zacchaeus, commonly enunciated Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, is saved by God. This, this, is, this, is, this teaching happens just before this happens. Look at, look, look at 19.8. 
Zacchaeus stopped and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of all my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that was lost. A tax collector. Saved. A tax collector has his heart changed. A tax collector who says, I will give everything that I have taken. I'll give it all back. God changed his heart. Go back to chapter 18 in the parable. I tell you, this man, verse 14, went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Zacchaeus was humbled, and therefore he was exalted. Salvation in the heart of Zacchaeus is a work of God. He, he's the one who does the seeking. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Chapter 19, verse 10. Now look at Luke 18, verse 15. They were bringing their babies to him that he would touch them. And the disciples saw it and they began rebuking him. Get these stupid kids out of here. But Jesus called them and said, Permit the children to come to me. Let them come to me. Let the children come. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. This moves us on the outline from the proud to the playful, uh, which I, I'm, I'm using just to refer to the young, uh, playful children. This is where the sermon title comes from. Verse 16, let the children come, permit the children to come. In verse 15, we have the word brephos, which is a Greek word that means literally baby. So you had some parents who were bringing babies to Jesus, and then you read in verse 16, apparently there were uh, other street children who saw this and they wanted a piece of the action and they're running to Jesus too. So you have the brephos, the babies, then you have the paideon, these street children who are, who are coming from the crowds and the disciples are getting ticked off about this. Hey man, you know, what are you doing? We read in Mark chapter 10 verse 14 in a parallel passage that Jesus gets indignant, the text says, with regard to his disciples. Aganakteo. Uh, it is a word that is used to describe intense passion in the face of something that is not right. This is not right, what you disciples are doing. Get out of the way and let them come to me. If you're reading in a King James Bible, it translates it this way. Suffer little children to come unto me and forbid them not. Uh, now the English word suffer was, was, was used at the time when you wanted to allow an action, a toleration of an action. You'd say suffer, suffer. You know. Now to our modern ears are like, that doesn't sound right because we use suffer in a different way today. And so our, our contemporary English translations won't render it that way. They permit, allow it. Now what is the issue? Why are they tripping like this? Well, you've got to go into their culture and understand. In the same way you see John baptizing, you go, what's the big deal? And then I go... Well, that's what they did to Gentiles. Oh, I see why that would be offensive. Okay, well, what's the big deal here? Children in Rome were not viewed the way they are in our culture. In the Roman Empire, there are orphans everywhere. Babies are born into poor families, and they're commonly discarded. Uh, infant mortality is very high. 40% uh, of kids in Rome didn't make it to the age of five. Think of a world, think of a world like that, where 40% of the kids don't make it to the age of five, and what that does to the psyche of the society. Parents stop bonding with their children because they don't know if they're going to make it. Uh, in that culture, parents actually didn't tend to give their children a name until they were much older because they were worried about bonding because they don't know if their kids are going to make it. 
a lot of children were discarded. Slavery was very common in this culture. Poor families would sell their children into slavery. The culture exploited women, so baby girls were literally thrown out, abandoned in heaps, picked up by pimps, raised into prostitution. Discarded boys were thrown in dumps and nursed until they were big enough to become slaves, and then they were turned into fighters and gladiators to be killed by animals in public arenas, murdered by professional fighters for the sport of entertainment. That's the culture. So kids weren't viewed the way they are in our culture. Now let me pause before I look condescendingly on the ancient culture for a second, because abortion is a sport far more lucrative and insane than the gladiator arena of Rome. We kill life, we kill innocent life, and the only reason we have gotten to this place in our culture is because we, we, we don't value life altogether. We view children in a similar manner. We're just blinded to it because we're trapped in our culture. They are inconveniences to the American dream. Generations ago, the American dream was tied to the flourishing of a family, but consumerism and greed and governmental corruption, exploiting man, has turned things on its head. And now the dream, the American dream now, is the acquiring of goods and not the good of a family, the sacrifice for, for the next generation. Time Magazine recently had a cover story, uh, The Child-Free Life. Kids are viewed as nuisances. They stop you from having fun. They're expensive. They take your money away that you could be using on doing fun things. Marriage, incidentally, does too. And so we have a culture of people who play house, cohabiting together, sleeping together, chasing the American dream, cars, houses, toys, trips. We even have trips now that, that are advertised as child-free trips go on a cruise. We don't let kids on it. And it's advertised that way. And, 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 you know, to be honest, sometimes that sounds tempting, right? But, you know, restaurants where there's no kids allowed. Yeah, sometimes that sounds tempting, you know, but th that's our culture. And the birth rate in our culture is at its lowest in recorded American history by some reports. The dream of our day is to sleep around a lot, to fall, uh, fall in love and to pursue your happiness. Uh, marriage and these other things, uh, you know, the, it's like whatever. And then if you have kids, you know, uh, latchkey them, give them keys and give them tablets and they can raise themselves. It's no wonder that we have 20,000 orphans in Los Angeles. A city as prosperous as Los Angeles has 20,000 orphans. And the youth, of, uh, uh, the youth trapped in the orphanages in our city, most of them are going to age out and they are disproportionately going to end up in prison systems. The United States puts more children and teenagers in juvenile attention than any other developed nation, with about 70,000 detained on any given day. Children aren't cared for in our culture. They're left to, to raising themselves, to becoming criminals, not to mention to be victims of crime. The news regularly reports of heinous things that are done to children, children killed by parents, neglected, abandoned. The National Center of Missing and Exploited Children receives close to 200,000 reports a year. Child pornography is one of the fastest growing crimes in the United States right now. According to the National Human Trafficking Resource Center, children are victimized by slavery in this country. Child pornography is a booming industry in this country. So before we look down at those Romans, we have to realize, I guess times haven't changed. But here's the good news. Jesus hasn't changed either. That's the good news. His heart for the children is still with us. And he says, you let them come to me. Verse 17, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. 
Now, Jesus speaks of receiving the kingdom, which is a metaphor for believing in him. The Jewish people are expecting a kingdom. John the baptizer, prepare the way of the kingdom, rolling out the red carpet. He's the king. Receive the kingdom means to believe in the king. The king is here. And you must believe in him like these children do. See how they're coming to me? Now, keep, keep the context. Children are people of no social status, no protection, no position. They're discarded. They're unwanted. The disciples even are trying to stop them from coming because it was socially improper for these dirty children to, to come around. You're, you're not going to look like a king if you have these dirty kids coming around and annoying kids. Think about heavy-handed dads with anger issues. Just, you know, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. Go to your room, be quiet. Get them out of here. And Jesus rebukes them. The picture of the unwanted is being used by Jesus to teach us about salvation. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. Anyone who's saved, never, ever think that you somehow earned that. The parable before it, beat your chest. I'm not worthy. I'm not. That's the heart of those who are saved by him. The unwanted are wanted. The undesirable are desired. Those without any position and protections are given citizenship in the kingdom of God. That is a powerful picture of salvation. Children are needy. They're dependent. And so too should be those who are in Christ needy and dependent. Jesus, I need your mercy. I depend on your sacrifice. I depend on you. Without you, I'm nothing. Again, remember, children in Jesus' time, they're not, they're not regarded as special. Not cute. Oh, look at those cute little kids. Those cute little... No, no, not in Rome. In Rome, everything is about power and position. And children are the opposite of that. There's no power and position in them. Look, let me put this in front of you. Luke chapter 9. There was an argument that started among the disciples about who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus, knowing that they were thinking in their, what they were thinking in their heart, we want power, we want position. It's Rome, baby. Jesus does what? In Luke 9, look at it. He took a child, took the child by his side, and he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among you is the one who is great. You want to talk about power? Grabs a little orphan and says, this is power. Role reversal, flipping the script. You take the weakest and the most vulnerable and the needy and the unwanted and you make that point. Salvation is God's work given by God's grace to the undeserving. The children are, are, are a great picture of this. This is soteriology. Look who's, who he's claiming for himself. Those you think are unwanted and outside. It's, it's also not just soteriology, it's eschatology. Because in the kingdom of God, when the Messiah returns... The children will run and enjoy the Father's love, and we won't care about power and position and being the greatest. We'll be set free from all the clamoring of power and position. Matthew chapter 18, look at this too. The disciples came to Jesus. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? He calls a child to himself, said it before him. Truly, I say, unless you are converted to become like children, you will not inherit, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, again, you see him using babies and children in these passages to talk about who the kingdom belongs to, such as these. Now, here's where I alluded to in the beginning. I was drawn to this passage because, one, we're going to see some youth get baptized. It's a wonderful picture of the church saying, let the children come, let, let them come, yay. Uh, also, these passages show us God's heart for the young. And so in a time of tragedy, when a child is lost, 
while we know that we are born in sin as children of Adam, we see Jesus calling Adam's children to himself. For those who affirm original sin and total depravity, as, as you should because it's in the Bible, we also affirm the grace of God in the face of losing our little ones, for we see the kingdom belongs to such as these. Now, how does that work? Well, work is the key to the answer. You see, the day of judgment is a judgment of works. In Revelation, the book of deeds are opened, and you are condemned by your works. As children of Adam, we will sin. We will have works against God. You see, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. But the judgment is based on those acts of transgression, not on the nature that we inherit from our father Adam. If you'd like to read more about it, because my sermon isn't on this, it's just a sidebar. We have copies of this in the entryway, safe in the arms of God, which unpacks more of this. But I, I find that often there's a lot of misunderstanding on this, and these passages just really show us God's heart, because he's using babies and children and talking about it in terms of the kingdom belonging to them. You say, but, but aren't we born sinners? Yes, we're born sinners, so we will have acts against God, and those will be the acts that will condemn us. John Calvin, the name that is most often associated with a doctrine of total depravity. The French theologian, pastor, reformer in Geneva, known for his influence in the Protestant Reformation. It's worth noting that John Calvin, when he, he was in his 30s, he lost a son. His son was born and lived for just a few hours. Weeks after this horrible loss, Calvin wrote a letter to a pastor friend, Peter Virit, and I'll quote from that letter. The Lord has certainly inflicted a severe and bitter wound in the death of our infant son, but he himself is a father and knows best what is good for his children. In his commentary on the book of Psalms in chapter 51, John, John Calvin affirms both being born in sin and then in Psalm chapter 8, which we read at the beginning of service today, where we read of, of, of infants praising God, Calvin writes about that and calls babies the proclaimers of the glory of God. So, so you see, there's not a, a tension there in terms of like, we're born in sin, yes, we're going to grow up and, 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 and we're going to commit works and we're going to be judged by those works, but we see the, the heart of God in his word. Mind you, these Psalms, 51 and 8, are written by David, and David himself was no stranger to the pain of child loss. In 2 Samuel 12, we read of the death of David's baby, and in 2 Samuel 12, verse 23, we read of his hope of reunion in the afterlife. And in verse 24, he consoles his wife in their time of loss with that hope. And David wrote Psalm 51, in sin my mother conceived me. And, and, and David in 2 Samuel 12 understands this God who loves and, and gives this grace and pardon. So here we have David's seed in Matthew 18 in front of us here, telling us, become like children because the kingdom belongs to them. Become like children, and he uses language of conversion, which is a turning from and a saving. Whoever, verse 4, humbles himself as his child, he's the greatest in the kingdom. Whoever receives a child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and drowned in the depth of the sea. John, John was calling people vipers and fire and winnowing fork. Jesus talking about drowning fools. This is, this is wild language. Millstones, you know, concrete shoes. This is gangster, Jesus. You know, yeah, don't, don't mess with those that God is calling to himself. So you have the proud, you have the playful. Next, you have the powerful. On the heels of the children, let them come. Now you have another role reversal. A ruler, verse 18, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He's leading him because, duh, I'm God. So you should know that I am God, but clearly the guy doesn't get it. You know, you know the commandments, verse 20. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And this powerful guy said, verse 21, all these things I've kept from my youth. Oh, you sound like the guy in the parable, right? You sound like the guy in the parable. It's like, I'm, I'm good, I'm good to go. You've kept all those from your youth? We should ask your mom and dad about that, honoring your parents one, buddy. Uh, I bet they got a different story. You've never lied? We should ask your, your ex-girlfriend about that. You've never taken something that wasn't yours? We should ask your employer. Are you serious right now? You're standing in front of God in the flesh, talking about, I've kept all the commandments? When Jesus heard this, verse 22, he said to him, one thing you lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. In Mark chapter 10, verse 21, in the cross-reference there, it says, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said, one thing you lack. If that's really true in your heart, then let go of all your stuff. It shouldn't be a problem if you're obeying the law so perfectly. But, verse 23, when he heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. Now again, juxtapose that with what we read in Luke 19 with Zacchaeus. In Luke 19, Zacchaeus, what did he do? He gave his possessions away. I'll let go of it. Why? Because salvation had come to his house. God had saved him. God had spared him from his hard heart. Jesus looks at this powerful man, and he's heavy, and he says this. Look at verse 24. How hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? Meanwhile, kids are just running up in it. But here's this powerful guy, and in that culture, again, you've got to understand the culture to let these verses hit. They had a prosperity culture like ours. The name it and claim it, health, wealth nonsense that goes on today. If you're rich, it must be because you are you're obeying God. He's rich, he's young, he's got, he's got health, he's got wealth. I mean, he must be good with God. How hard is it for them to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Likely an idiom of the day. Uh, it's a hyperbolic picture. You've never seen a camel walk through the eye of a needle. Maybe through a door or something, but not the eye of a needle. Then who could be saved, verse 26? Verse 27, Jesus said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Driving home, if you're saved, it's not because you did it. That would be impossible. If you're saved, it's because God did it. He makes all things possible. Peter hears this and he starts to panic. Look at verse 28. Behold, we left our homes and we followed you. What is Peter doing? Appealing to his own works. Peter, didn't you hear the parable? Weren't you, weren't you, didn't you hear the parable about the guy who's like, I'm so good. Peter, come on, bro, come on. Jesus is patient with him. He said, truly I say to you, there is no one who left his, his house or a wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much as this time in the age to come, eternal life, everlasting life. He speaks of salvation. He speaks of rewards. He's, he's patient with his disciples when they're not getting it. And thanks be to Jesus that he's patient with us when we're not getting it. Even, I mean, this sermon now, I'm probably not getting myself preaching. There's probably stuff that I, I'm preaching to you and thinking, I'm good on that one, and maybe I'm not. And you, maybe you're hearing the message, and you're thinking, so-and-so needs to hear this. And you're, you're missing, no, 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 you, you need to hear this. And he presses into Peter, knowing he needs to hear it, and with, with love and gentleness, he presses into him. 
Don't worry about your stuff. Get your eyes off your stuff. Listen, have you been to a funeral before? You've been to funerals before, right? Have you ever seen a U-Haul driving behind a hearse? You can't take your stuff with you. What are you living for? The passage moves from this role reversal of the powerful guy not getting it, the children getting it, the disciples not getting it, the Pharisee not getting it, all these role reversals into the prophetic or prophecy. Look at the text, verse 31. They're going up to Jerusalem. I told you this is the transition. And the prophets, we read in verse 31, of the Son of Man is going to be accomplished. That's what he was telling Moses and Elijah. For he will be handed over, verse 32, to the Gentiles. He will be mocked, mistreated, spit upon. He will be scourged. They will kill him. And on the third day he will rise again. Son of Man, Messiah, prophecy, Isaiah, Daniel. He's tying this all together for them. The one who got in the waters and took your dirt, I'm going to go hang on the cross so that dirt can be cleansed by my blood. Now the disciples, look at verse 34, understood none of these things. And the meaning of the statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend these things. Again, notice that God's the sovereign who opens the mind to see. That's why we pray, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Because without him, you can't. And he called out, verse 38. Look at verse 38. What do you see in verse 38? A blind man calling out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on me. So, so, so Jesus is teaching his disciples, and they're not seeing it. And then what do you see happen? A blind man who sees it and calls out, Lord, have mercy on me. Do, do you see the role reversals here? Kids get it. The powerful don't. The disciples don't get it. A blind man does. A tax collector gets it, but a Pharisee doesn't. You see, all, the, all these opposites r- reminding us salvation is a gift. You don't have it coming. You don't deserve it. None of us deserve entry into his kingdom, and yet he gives it because he's a God of grace and a God of mercy. And if you come to him and you seek his forgiveness, you will know his mercy and grace. There's nothing in front of it. There's not a pope. There's there's not uh, dead people you have to pray to. There's no ritual. There's nothing in between you and him. He's the one mediator between God and man, and you can cry out to him, and you can be set free right now. And we're going to come to the communion table. That's the practical part. As we respond to the word, we come to the communion table and we have on it symbols. We're going to see baptism in a moment. It's a symbol. Because you have come in faith and repentance, you have these symbols. And we come to the table and on the table you have a cup and you have bread. Oh, that's Exodus. Oh, that's Passover. The bread of the Passover table and and the blood of the Passover lamb. And oh, a new Exodus has come and he's liberating us and rescuing us from slavery to, to sin and he's bringing us into his kingdom. And we get to enjoy those. And we get to respond to his word. As we respond to his word, I challenge you to ask yourself uh, of these characters and what we've learned, who am I standing in the way of? Like the disciples. Get them out of here. Get them. You know, who might I be standing in the way of? Lord, I want to respond to your word. Help me to see as we come to the table today. To respond in, 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 in repentance to our self-righteousness. Who am I trusting in? Am I like Peter? But look at, look at I left my house and I did this. And Are you like the, the, the Pharisee? You know, oh, thank you, I'm not like that guy over there. Who, who am I trusting in for my righteousness? To respond to your sin and acknowledge that you need grace. You've sinned against God. Nothing you can do to make it right. That's, 
that, that's the nature of breaking law. You, you need forgiveness. You need grace. You need salvation. And with salvation, we, we ask, whose work is it, God or man? We see very clearly with man, it's what? Impossible. But with God, it is possible. And this is why we pray for our friends who don't know him. God save him, because we believe in a God who's, who's bigger than our, our sin and our stubbornness, and a God who's gracious to give sight to the blind. Another point for practice is sacrifice. Will I forsake all for Jesus and his mission? That powerful man wouldn't give it up. He was, he was holding on to it. He said, I'm not, I'm not going to let go of this. There's a great irony to tell a rich man that he lacks something. He may have money. He may have morals. But you know what? He's not impressing God. He lacks something. God is not impressed by, by, by Elon Musk or Joe Rogan or Oprah. Or, he's not impressed. It's a matter of the heart. And so he presses into them to expose their hearts so they see the sin that is in there and, and, and they respond and seek him for forgiveness. Trade your earthly stuff for heavenly stuff. Again, you're never going to see a hearse driving behind a U-Haul. What are you living for, brother and sister? Jim Elliott was a missionary who gave up his Western riches to go to the mission field where he lived in poverty and was killed for sharing Jesus Christ. He famously said in one of his journals, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Ask yourself as you come to the communion table today, what am I holding on to? What am I holding on to? Ask yourself if you've surrendered fully to him. Brothers and sisters, this is the stuff of revival that God would create in us a heart in these areas. Finally, finally, symbols. Will we celebrate the ordinances that he has given to us to picture what he has done? So I'm going to pray and we're going to come to the communion table. Our brother Landon is going to lead us in two songs. I'll then be in the baptismal and we get to see these pictures of washing, new exodus, Passover lamb, bread, and you have things to reflect on so that as you're doing that, you can be coming to him and saying, Lord, help me. I don't want to be like the publican. I want the heart of the tax collector, the heart of the child, the heart of the blind man. Do a work in me, O oh God. And may we all come to him in response. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for Luke. What an amazing sweep we've been able to study today. We saw the birth of your son who has come for us. We skipped over his genealogy to see his pedigree. That He's the second Adam. He's the seed of Abram. He's the seed of David. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. And oh, he holds more prophecy in his hand that he is unfolding in this very hour now. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would move and stir in the hearts of those who have heard this message today, that you would let them come unto you, that nothing would hinder them from coming, that nothing would stand in the way. And Lord, that you would pry from our hands the things of the earth that we hold on to. Lord, not just tangible things, the, the stuff, but Lord, ideas too, and relationships, and other things that we hold on to. Lord, take it from us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we now respond to your word and symbolize your work as we come to the table. In the name of Jesus, amen.